Okay, we're going to do a little uh, experiment. I don't think I've ever asked you guys to do this in service before, so uh, if you're getting nervous, you should be. Okay, so um, I want you guys to close your eyes, okay? So close your eyes for you uh, shy people uh, and anxious people. You're really going to hate this, and so if it really causes some anxiety, don't worry about it, but if you can, close your eyes with me. I'm going to paint a picture for you, okay? So uh, I want you to picture yourself hanging from a ledge, okay? And you look up and you see your hands, and your hands are gripped very tightly on the edge of the ledge, right? And, and, and if you've ever held on, right, it's your knuckles are starting to turn red, your hands are starting to sweat, your heart starts to beat, okay? And then you look down and you realize you're six inches off the ground. And then a friend runs to the ledge and says, I got you, and reaches out his hand and pulls you up like a hero. Okay, now open your eyes. Okay, how thankful are you to that hero that came and pulled you up? That's an actual question. Not that thankful, right? You're like, dude, I, it was six inches, you overreacted, don't do that again, right? Whatever it may be. So, okay, again, close your eyes. We're, we're going to enter it one more time, and then I swear we're done. Okay, so close your eyes again. Now again, imagine yourself hanging from a ledge. Your muscles start to tense up, right? Where they're starting to get just pumped out. You see the veins, you're sweating, your heart is beating. And then you look down this time and you realize you are on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And thousands of feet below is your death. And then out of the blue, as your hands begin to slip from the dirty ground, a friend rushes to you and grabs your hand in the last possible second and pulls you up and saves you from certain despair and death. Now open your eyes. Okay, how much are you thankful for that person, right? Like, like that, that person, you're, you're pretty high on that person, right? Like for the rest of, like you would at, at, at least you're buying that person lunch, Okay. Like, you saved my life. Now, now here's the reality. This just makes sense because um, the more perilous the situation, the more the hero is revered. Right? The more perilous and, and, and broken and fearful and, and, and death-defying the situation, the more the one that comes in to save you is going to be something or someone that you give all of your life to. Okay? What we get is this amazing opportunity in chapters 5, 6, and we'll start in 7. So we've got a lot to cover today, so I will try and go a bit faster. But in 5, 6, and 7, let me give you the rubric for what we're doing in Exodus. We've already told you from Exodus 1 through 4 that this is the origin story. It's the setup of God's redemptive plan for the people of Israel. The people of Israel were in captivity and slavery in Egypt. God is trying to draw them out, and he's doing so primarily through his agent Moses, whom he has raised up to deliver his people from Pharaoh, the enemy. Now, we can easily think Moses is the hero of the story, and ultimately he's not. That's reserved for God himself. And it's never more evident than in the story today. In chapter 5, which we'll look at first, we're going to see Pharaoh, the unjust tyrant. Okay? And we'll break down just how perilous the situation is for the people of God. 
In chapter 6, we're going to see God raised up, rather, as this just ruler, and they will be pitted against one another in this cosmic and epic battle that starts in chapter 7. So in 5, we get the villain, in 6, we get the hero, and in 7, we get the start of their epic battle, which will continue on over the next few weeks, okay? And so this is kind of the rubric for what we're doing today. So here we go. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read the first part of the narrative. There's going to be some scriptures we'll skip today. I'll just paraphrase for sake of brevity. So here we go. Exodus 5, 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness and may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and make them rest and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the people, and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, and we'll just kind of stop there. He goes out and they, they tell the people exactly what the people, or exactly what Pharaoh had said. Like, hey, listen, you guys need to do all of this work. And here's what begins to happen is the people start to slack off. Okay, and we're going to learn a little bit in just why, just why in just a moment. But they rebel and say, no, we're not going to do that. And this is impossible. You want us to be able to do the same amount of work while you're not supplying the supplies and us to do the same amount of work that we need to do. So, what we're going to learn is the four characteristics of Pharaoh, the unjust tyrant, and we'll break down that text together by doing so. So the first one, characteristics of unjust tyrant, chapter 5, again, the villain, the enemy of the story. Verse 1, he or they, any unjust tyrant, rejects God. Now, um, notice that right off the bat, he says this line, who is the Lord? Now, hear me, he's about to find out. In a very powerful way, he's about to find out who the Lord is. Like this, and if you even notice, right, when, when Moses and Aaron show up on the scene, they begin to share with them, like, hey man, the God of Israel says this. Now this is a big deal. Like this already gets his back up a bit. Like if you've ever been a friendship or with someone who walks up to you and say, uh, like, you know, this casually come up to you and say, hey, don't be mad, but, right? Like immediately you're like, well, now I'm mad, right? Like I was fine, but now you've caused me to be upset by just the sheer saying, don't be mad, right? And so th th when, when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, and say like, hey, uh, the God of Israel. Now, Egyptian, uh, Egypt had tons of, tons of gods. The God of Israel was not one of them. And so immediately Pharaoh knows this is not good news, okay? Th this is not something I want to hear, and then he doubles down even further, Moses and Aaron, by saying, uh, no, it's God of the Hebrews. So now the Jewish people would have more best been known as, as the Hebrew people. And so he's saying, it's it, not God of Israel, okay, the God of the people you are oppressing, 
right? Which again, you just know like, ah, that's not gonna sit well with him. The God of the people that I am oppressing has something to say to me. This will not go well, okay? And so he, he, he rejects God in this moment. He says, well, who is the Lord that I, Pharaoh, should bow down to him? This is the ultimate kind of, right, pride comes before a fall moment. Where you're like, listen, who, who, who am I? I'm not going to bow down to this guy. I don't know this guy. Why would I ever do that? And hear me, I, if you guys watch, like, does any, this is weird. Do you guys watch movies? Like, people do that, right? And one of my favorite part of, like, any story, any narrative, any movie, any show, and even especially, like, in, in sports, like, if you ever see a, a sports player that, like, is just boasting in himself, right, that is, that is just kind of cocky and throwing it out there, right, they're showboating, that stuff drives me crazy, and I want nothing more than for that person to be destroyed, okay? Like, like I just want them to lose, I, I, I want them to, to, to get hurt poor, badly, not in real life, but in movies, you get what I'm saying? Um, and maybe it's just my issue, I don't know, but so, um, like, it just drives me crazy. So we know in this story, this goes bad for Pharaoh. Now, if you didn't know that, that's a spoiler alert, right? Like, this goes bad for Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh boasting in this moment, like, oh, he's going to get it. He is going to get it. So this first one, right, they, they reject God. Now, some of you might say, okay, but there, there's been, like, Christian tyrants throughout history. And, and my, 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 my quick pushback to be, no, there hasn't, okay? Now, now, I think there have been leaders and tyrants that have employed the name of God with which they use to subject people. That's absolutely true. Uh, they've employed the name of God to oppress people. Absolutely true. John 14 says that he who has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He is the one who knows me. He's the one that follows me. So hear me, like Christian tyrant, that is not a thing. Okay, that's, that is a paradox. That's an oxymoron. That doesn't work. And so, so the first thing we see in Pharaoh and we see in these unjust tyrants is that they, they reject God and the things of God. The second one, they view people as personal property. So Pharaoh looks upon these people in Israel and he, he treats them like puzzle pieces. Or, or if you ever played the game Risk, right? He's like, I'm just going to move all these pieces here. And they just begin to kind of fulfill whatever purpose best suits the king. So he didn't see them as valuable. He didn't see them with dignity. He just sees them as expendable pieces in a game that he's playing. And so he can do whatever, listen, you can do whatever you want if you can lower someone down to that level. If you begin to see someone at that level, now hear me, um, every pharaoh, if you even look at history, there are tons of times where pharaohs would turn against their own kin, right? But on the whole, at the top level of the people that uh, the pharaohs liked would be Egyptian royalty, right? Like their family members. Below them would be kind of the Egyptian wealthy, kind of uh, that caste system that was someone involved, right? So if you were wealthy, you had a little more power, then they liked you a bit more. Then below that would be like the Egyptian citizens. So then you had a little more power. He liked you a little bit. Kind of below the Egyptian citizen was like everybody else. But somehow in the last 400 years in our narrative, the Jews have slipped below everyone else. They, they have become the lowest person on the totem pole. They have become the people group that has been subjugated and continually pushed down that then they may be used as this enemy, as this pawn in this game that Pharaoh is playing. And so when you begin to treat people that way, when you view people that way, you can treat them however you like. 
And the people of Egypt are culpable in this because for 400 years they buy into this same view of the Jew, which, let's be honest, the Jew had really done nothing but help Egypt flourish. Was there a bad apple in there or two? I'm sure. But on the whole, the Jewish sojourner, the ones, this people that this was not their home who came into that land, they were a blessing to Egypt. And yet in the midst of that, they grew in too much strength. They wouldn't assimilate stuff we talked about in previous weeks, and so they became the enemy. They were not viewed as, as prized possession, which we'll see in a moment, but rather as property, something to be controlled. And so that's the second one. The third one, they rule by power and fear. This is every tyrant ever, right? Disobey me and you'll be punished, okay? We don't even have to say a ton about that. That's just real. So you see this, Pharaoh saying, do it my way or you're punished. He even begins to punish the foreman and his officers for not uh, fully buying into his vision for how to oppress the Israelites. Now, it's even real, though. Someone interesting is that some of the foremen might have been Jews themselves. And so you even had Jews kind of turning on each other in this oppressive state. Because that's what we do when we get pressed. We tend to make decisions where we'll even hurt the people closest to us. Okay? The last one, they impose harsh and impossible demands. Okay, so, so if you don't understand this straw, so I know most of you make a lot of bricks on any given week. Okay, but for those of you who don't, let me, let me explain a little bit. So when you're making bricks, okay, you need, this is back then, it's different now, right? Um, but they would form these bricks and straw would kind of act like rebar acts like today. Like it would fasten and hold the brick together. And so it would make it more sturdy so they continue to build all the structures that you guys read about in your history class, okay? So Pharaoh comes in and says, hey, I want you to make the same amount of bricks for the work we're doing, but you know all the straw we normally provide for it? You have to go harvest and get that stuff yourself but I'm not going to change the demands, okay? So in other words, he's creating an impossible demand. By doing so, by creating that impossible demand, he knows they'll fail. He knows they'll lose, and he can continue to oppress them. He can continue to kind of move and say, well, look at these people. They're not doing what I ask, and so we can continue to oppress and subjugate and push down. They impose impossible demands upon the people. So let me just stop for a moment, okay? Like this, this is the situation that the Israelites are in. And let me remind us what we said in the introduction to this book, that we as the church, if you're here and you love Jesus, you have been grafted into the people of God, okay? We now look to Israel and say, man, that is our heritage. Like this is our ancestry. This is God's family that we have been brought into. And so this is our people's history. And as you delve into it, man, you realize the depth of the subjugation and pain that they were in. For 400 years, this was their reality. Wherever they went, they were despised and hated. A pharaoh was doing everything he could to exterminate them. We learned that a couple weeks ago. And now the demands continue to pile upon them, right? So th this, this just hopefully paints a picture for the perilous state that the Jews are in, okay? Now, let's read verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them, and they, because we skipped some verses here, are talking about the foremen and the officers. They come to Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In other words, what have you done, right? So the foremen come to Moses and Aaron and say, you're supposed to help us, but it's only gotten worse. And so what does Moses do? He turns and then blames God. God, like, where are you at? You said to go and do this. The people are still subjugated. The people are still in pain. Where are you at? All we've done is anger Pharaoh. Like, I remember growing up in, in Louisiana, we would go in the levee, and I lived right, my backyard was, was a swamp, and so we would, we would ride our bikes down the levee, and we would throw rocks at alligators, right? Which is just, a, it's not a smart idea, right? Like, you're just like, don't anger the alligator, okay? But this is, they're just like, all you've done is make Pharaoh more upset, more frustrated. He's doubled down on his oppression of our people. God, where are you? Like, hear me, for, for Moses and Aaron, is, this is the ultimate Grand Canyon cliffhanger moment. What do I do? There's nothing left. Like, like this was supposed to start getting better and it didn't. Do you know what's happening to our people? Gosh, do we really, the only way out of this is, is if a hero steps up. And so again, that's why we get a transition into, our, into chapter 6. And we go from villain to hero, from Pharaoh to God, and we get to learn about him. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 says this. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God." You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirits and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And stop right there. Okay, so God gives this, okay, I know it seems bad. You're coming at me right now like this is my fault. And here, here's what's so interesting about our God is in this moment, I think he could have been like, Dude, shut up, right? And maybe I shouldn't say that from pulpit. I don't, but you know, S H U T U P. I'll just spell it, okay? Like, don't. Who are you to say this to me? Like, he could have gone full Job on him. Did Did you create the heavens, right? Like, did Did you think up planets? No, like I did that. Like, he could have gone full Job, but instead he presses in in love, and he answers Moses's question. Where are you, God? Here he is. So the characteristics of our just ruler uh, in, this, in this sense, God. Now hear me, both, both of our Pharaoh and, and God, right, they, they both oversee kingdoms, okay? Um, Pharaoh oversees Egypt, God oversees the world. 
Okay, so just, just understand a bit of kind of the, the, the responsibility of the two. Um, Pharaoh, uh, he, can, he can see like the 40 years or so of him ruling that we have so far. God, God is ruler over the kingdom at all times for all eternity. And, and so this is very important as you begin to understand the character of God, is that he sees things you and I don't see. He knows things you and I don't know. He lives places you and I don't live. He's outside of time. We're inside of time. He's brilliant and created everything. You are the created thing. All of that stuff must be necessary as we approach who is this God then that will deliver. So the four characteristics then of the just ruler. Instead of rejecting God, they know and act like God. In this case, they are God. So that's helpful. Okay? So, so instead of rejecting God, they, they act like God. And so um, instead of who is the Lord, it's I am the Lord. Amen. See? She gets it. Instead of who is the Lord, it's I am the Lord. He is establishing himself. Go back to verses 6 through 8. Okay? If you go back and look, you'll notice book ended on God's promise to deliver the people of, Egypt, or people of Israel out of Egypt is what? I am the Lord. On both ends of it. I am the Lord. Here's what I'll do. I am the Lord. He's putting his stamp on his promise. He's putting his stamp on, this is the work I'll do. You can take that to the bank. I am who I am. I will deliver. Second thing. Instead of viewing people as personal property, they view people as prized possession. Verse 7, okay, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is like possession type language. God's like, no, like, you'll, you'll be my people and I will be your God. Like, there's this beautiful reciprocated relationship that now people have with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. What incredible invitation. What a, what a complete divergence from the way Pharaoh views Israel to say, they are these people I don't care about. In fact, I want to exterminate. Rather, a God that comes in and says, no, man, like, you're mine. And if you guys have ever loved something enough, you know that when you have a prized possession, you do anything to keep it, you do anything to cause it to flourish. This is kind of parenting 101, right? When you, when you have a child, you're just like, gosh, I didn't know I could love something that much, type of thing. Okay. Which brings us to the third one. Instead of ruling by power and fear, they rule by power and love. Okay. Now, now, don't think like rom-com-esque love, right? For, for you older crowd, like this isn't Hugh Grant, okay? For, for you younger people, it's not the boy from To All the Boys I've Ever Loved Before, or whatever that, that little thing. See, yeah, I knew it. I knew all of you watched that. Okay, so um, that, that's not, it's not that. You see, you see this, this type of love, and we, we went in depth in it the last couple of weeks, but this type of love, right? from a vantage point of being able to see everything, looks towards truly what is the best interest of the one they love. So sometimes the way to get that person to said destination doesn't always seem like the most loving thing, but it is. So God leads with power and love instead of fear. But love has certain ways that it fulfills itself from a God who sees and knows all things. Love also pursues, because you notice throughout the narrative, 
Israel is constantly, and you'll see this throughout the entire Old Testament if you read it, God's like, I love you, I'm with you, you'll be my people. Israel says yes for a moment, but then eventually they say no. God then does something to bring them back to himself, and they go through the same cycle over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Israel constantly rejecting a pursuing God. Sounds similar to the way our hearts can often be, I think. God, I'm all in for you. I love you. Let's do this. Ah, maybe not. God does something amazing to to draw us back to himself because he's the pursuer. We come back to him. We're faithful. And then we go into that same cycle, a cycle that the Lord wishes to end, I must say. Okay. So God rules by power and love. I remember a moment we're kicking and screaming. My parents wanted to take me to the zoo again. And no offense against the zoo. If you like the zoo, that's great. It's not my favorite place to go to. In Louisiana, it's really crazy hot in the summer, very humid. And so I remember my parents saying, hey, get in the car. We're going to the zoo. And I said, the zoo again? I don't want to do the zoo. Why don't you want to do the zoo? It's all the same stuff, right? It's not like a new giraffe. They all look the same anyway. Show me a slideshow of the last trip, okay? We're going to the zoo. I get in the car. I'm just whining the whole time. I'm whining. God, I don't want to go to the zoo. Dad, I don't want to go to the zoo. I want to go to the zoo. It's just dumb. I don't like it. All of a sudden, we pull up to the New Orleans International Airport. Sit in the zoo. I said, no, you little whiner. Okay? We're going to Hawaii on a vacation. Okay? I had a really tough childhood. Uh, and... Uh, so my parents, right, like, they knew something I didn't know. They knew a destination I didn't understand was going there. And so they dealt with my whining and my complaining. Why? Because they loved me that much. God is going to deal with your whining, okay? He's going to deal with the complaining. He's going to deal with the constant no thank yous because God is the pursuing God. He's not some pharaoh that wants to use you. You're not some puzzle pieces in a game that God is playing in the redemptive history of the world. God sees you, and God knows you, and God loves you, and he's taking you a destination that is far greater than anything your eyes could ever understand or see. He is the just ruler and king. He is not pharaoh. He is the hero of the story. We're going to talk more about what this all means for us in just a moment. But the last little point. Instead of imposing harsh and impossible demands, just rulers do the work that their people cannot. Okay. Rose says, hey, you have to go and do this, and I'm going to create this thing to oppress you. God says, no, I'm going to actually enter into the world and do what you cannot do that I might love you in the midst of it. In fact, me doing the work that you cannot do is going to allow me to love you even more. Fascinating, right? The contrast between these two kings, Israel being begged to say, choose God, choose Yahweh. Don't, like Pharaoh and this life, and hear me, the same question is going to come for us when we wrap up before we're done today. Of, of which king will you guys follow? Okay. So let's keep going. Verse 28. <clears throat> um, sorry, in 14 through 30. Uh, we kind of skipped some verses there, and it's not because there's not some awesome stuff in there that you should study. It's a lot of genealogy, 
Okay? It's a lot of uh, putting names to different places and amount of kids and stuff like that. And there are some fascinating realities about what's happening in that genealogy just for sake of time. We, don't, we could do a whole sermon on just breaking down all that stuff, but it's pretty fascinating. I'd encourage you not to just speed through it. Get a commentary, study it. It's really good. So fast forwarding to verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Notice how many times he keeps saying, it's like, this is who I am, this is who I am, don't forget it, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Okay, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised, let's how will Pharaoh listen to me. Exodus 7, 1, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people out of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses, 80 years old, and Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Uh, Ironically, one of the other translations that could be alligator, which is, that was not intentional, but that's there. So Moses, which is, and that, it makes the story even a bit crazier. Like an alligator showed up. That's, That's awesome. Okay, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became serpent slash alligator. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same with their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, they became, you get it, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Brief recap. God again goes to Moses and Aaron, go again and talk to Pharaoh, okay? Go again, try again, get out. Like, I know he's rejected, I get it. Like, this is, I knew this was gonna happen. His heart will be hard against this idea because here's what you're asking him to do. You've had in Egypt now 400 years of free manual labor. It's a hard thing to give up. Right? It's not something we don't understand in our country. Like, we had a war about this. It still affects our country to this day. That's a whole, right? We... So for them to come and say, I want, you to, I want you to give up all of the things, all of the people that have helped build this massive empire that you see before your eyes, I want you to just let it go. You and I could have predicted this wasn't going to go well. Pharaoh wasn't going to be like, yeah, sounds good. No, he says. You, you can't have them. This is where God begins to really flex who he is. He's like, it's, it's, it's as if in this moment, he's just like, yeah, I'm God, okay? And I'm about to do some things. I'm about to show Pharaoh truly who I am. He's saying, who is the Lord? I am the Lord, and I'm about to show you exactly what that means. Moses, Aaron, Go. And then you get this alligator face-off, okay? Where one devours the other to show the power of the Israelite God over all other princes and principalities. But it's not enough, okay? It's not enough for Pharaoh to wisen up and say, this, is, this could go poorly. 
um, we should actually just let them go. And so what's going to come next week will be 10 plagues. We'll do the first nine next week. We're going to cover Passover the following week. And so what you, what you have to understand is God, God's about to truly show who he is. Now what we begin, begin to see already in this text, and we'll continue to flesh it out over the next couple weeks, is the sovereignty of God in this story. Because you do have to deal with this reality of what does it mean then that when God speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let the people go or else. And in the midst of it, God is saying, but I will harden his heart. That is a, that's a difficult thing to wrestle with. Now, now, there's a lot of little bits and pieces to this. And so I guarantee you my answer right now will be somewhat unsatisfactory. I would encourage you to come back next week to hear more of the story and the week after to hear the fulfillment of the story. And if you have questions, to come and sit down and let's talk about what does it mean for God to be sovereign and still do this. Now, a few things you have to understand about this word harden in this passage. And this is somewhat difficult given our English terms, but there are three different hardens in the Hebrew here in the text. And they mean somewhat different things and are intentionally employed by the author to denote different things that are happening within the text. The first time that we see the most often used term show up is in the beginning of chapter 4 where a snake begins to pursue Moses, and God commands Moses, he says, to pick it up from its tail, and it hardens into a staff. Okay. Now, the terminology and the imagery meant to elicit there is it moves into the first moment with which then uh, God will say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, is to give us, because it's the same word, just a handful of verses later in chapter 4, is the specific of seize or stop, okay? The serpent was moving towards calamity for Moses, was seeking to hurt, destroy, cause pain to Moses, and Moses was to seize the serpent and cause it to harden. So the most often used term when we look at harden within the context, and we're going to see it, all, it keeps coming up throughout the narrative in Exodus all the way, I think, up to chapter 19, Okay? But the most often used is this, Pharaoh is off to do something terrible and has done terrible things to the people of God. He's done it for his reign and all the Pharaohs before him. Moses is to, God ultimately seizes, stops the work of Pharaoh seeking to destroy Israel. He hardens his heart. He seizes his work and stops him from the calamity he wishes to cause upon those around him. That being said, that's not the only way it's used. It is also used in the way we would think about it. God sovereignly moves in and cause, causes Pharaoh's heart to not consider the demands of God. Now, that same term is used by about Pharaoh himself. It says, Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens his heart. So Pharaoh causes his own heart to not consider the request of God, and God does the same work. 
Now the difficulty here is, well then, okay, if we're still kind of stuck with, we're not saying that Moses, or, or sorry, that Pharaoh wasn't culpable at all. He was clearly a terrible dude. But what does that mean that if God would sovereignly come in and do that, like how could he still be to blame? And, and hear me, we will continue to flesh this out, but Romans 9 gives us a helpful understanding. Romans 9 verse 14 says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It is one of the most heavy and weighty and real and difficult texts in the entire Bible. It, it is that Job moment, right? And if you're familiar with the story of Job, Job is getting just blasted, losing everything. And he, he, he cries out to God, God, essentially, what's going on? And, and God comes back to him. He says, like, like who, who are you? Like, I, I created the heavens and the earth. Like, I thought you up, Job. I caused the tides, caused the sun to rise, the moon to rise. Like, I, this is who I am. This is a similar idea. So, so hear me now. Everything that you ever, like when you have a friend, a spouse, uh, a child, a parent, uh, a pastor, whatever, when they say something to you, you always must what? Interpret it through the lens of who you know that person to be. We do it all the time, okay? So, so hopefully, some of y'all are friends, okay? I'm assuming. You'll have you showed up together. So you probably said something to drive over, and you might think, you could go a handful of different directions in the way you receive something that somebody said to you. But the first and primary way you will do so is by putting it through the lens of who that person is. What you know to be true about their character, what you know to be true about their actions that have backed up their character. And so the best thing that I have for us this morning is God has continually shown us who he is, not just in the book of Exodus, but in the entire narrative of scripture, that this whole thing points us to a God who lays down his own life that those who are enemies might be redeemed. So this is not God hating people. This is, this is not God. It, we must judge these comments who we know about what we know and who God is. Sovereign, good, faithful, loving, all-pursuing king of this world. Creator and ruler that sees things 
you and I do not see, knows things you and I do not know. If if it is he then that is the one that we worship, revere, and follow, these things, although I'm not saying throw it away because it's not difficult, but, but maybe, just maybe, our understanding of right, wrong, just, unjust is not the same as his. And that maybe, just maybe, the work that we see in Exodus is actually, and not just maybe, it is redemptive, restorative, and it is filled with love. Because what we know already from the text is that there's a few reasons why Egypt is judged here, or this happens to Egypt. The first one we're told is that there's because of judgment, that Egypt was doing horrible and atrocious things, and they were judged before a holy God. The second is that Egypt would ultimately know who God is. Because it isn't until you're in great peril that the hero seems all that great. And then lastly, that Israel, his people, would be free. And let us not forget the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, that they would be blessed to be a blessing. In other words, he is setting a people free that he is going to use to bless the world. So we bring that into today. And maybe that's hard for us to buy into. But I want you to just for a moment imagine a church that does everything that maybe you or I think they're supposed to be doing. And the way we love, serve, and care for the poor, act on behalf of the oppressed, love each other, supply for each other, resource each other, encourage each other, etc., 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 And what impact of love would that happen upon the community of Flagstaff? And if you could see and imagine such a gift to the world, the things God does to procure and to save it from elimination just makes sense. Because remember, the context, Pharaoh is systematically trying to cause genocide to come upon the people of Egypt. We saw that prior. They were killing every male in the people of God, trying to remove them from the world, God's agent of mercy, grace, peace, and love to the world. God is sovereign. God is good. And in chapters 5 and 6, we get to see the contrast. He is not Pharaoh. Don't buy into the lie that he is anything but holy and perfect and good and sovereign and all of the things we can say about him. So we come into chapter 7, and we see now this battle begin to be waged that will continue on into next week and the week after, and God will be triumphant. But for the last five minutes to just bring us into what does this mean for today, if I could. Now, we don't have a pharaoh anymore, right? Like that's just, We don't have an oppressive pharaoh that's causing Israel or causing the church to do crazy manual labor. It's a different context in a different world. But I would like to invite you to just think a little bit bigger and identify the reality that there's still pharaohs in our world. And by that, I don't even just mean crazy individuals that are imposing harsh things upon people, although that exists. Not, 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 not here, but around the world, that's a real thing. And that needs to be opposed. But church, let us open our eyes to the reality that there are pharaohs that disguise themselves in way different ways in our culture today. 
There's things that seek to do the same four things that we saw the unjust tyrant Pharaoh do in the Old Testament that things now seem to do that cause us to swear allegiance to it as opposed to allegiance to our God who is in heaven. Things such as consumerism, individualism, and nationalism. These different things that vie for your attention, that vie for your allegiance and impose incredible and harsh demands upon you. Think, and just for a moment, think, think about consumerism, right? Like any product, my wife and I, we went to buy her a, a new used car last year. And uh, don't buy new. If you do that, that's crazy. Don't do that. Okay. That's from the Lord. Okay, so, um, so we're searching for a car. And I tell you, that consumerism starts rearing ahead. That, that, that Pharaoh that's longing for allegiance, right? Because all of a sudden, um, right, the idea they reject God. It's like, no, why do they reject God? Because the product is the God. The car becomes the God. Do anything to, to, to they, they view people as property, right? You no, know, hear me, like, the car, the car just, they see you as, as just the customer, as the client, nothing more. Like, the car isn't there to serve you. Consumerism isn't, isn't there to serve you. It, it's meant to take from you. That's the whole idea. The next one, they rule by fear. So the constant lie about consumer, right? If you don't have this, your life won't be as good. If you don't have this, your life will suffer. You need this or your life will not be great. Everyone else has this, so you need it too. This is a giant lie. The last one. They impose possible demands, okay? Buy me, but then we'll create something even newer and better that we actually designed five years ago, but we'll roll it out seven years later so you have to buy something new because the demands continue to be raised. And hear me, you can do that across the spectrum. Think about individualism. No, in individualism, your God, people exist for you. To depend on others is weak, so seek self-help. Nationalism, USA is God or whatever nation you're from. Citizens exist for its glory and to question its glory will cause suffering and pain, so like it or leave. You come to all of these different things that ask and say, no, but they're, they're hidden. And we have a God on the other side that says, stop buying into that stuff. I am your king. I am the sovereign God of the world that made you. I will grant life to you. They will not. And last little point. We're going to be constantly reminded, we said this in the intro, that so much of Exodus is meant to show the people of God that they are Egypt. They are Pharaoh. And God is the hero. Because the reality is, is hear me friends, like until we realize we're not just hanging off some cliff with one foot below us. We're hanging off the Grand Canyon and we need a hero to come in and save us. And he has. We are, hear me, like we are Pharaoh. We reject God. We value lives differently. We abuse power and we always expect more. Now, though that be true, Christian, the gospel reminds us that we have a lot of God in us also. Do we have some Pharaoh in us, some Egypt in us? Yes. But the good news about the gospel is we've got a whole lot of God in us. Because in the life that Jesus lived, he lived perfectly, the life we could not live. He died the death we deserved to die and was raised on the third day. And then when he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit to dwell in and amongst his people. So now you are new, born again, the old man is gone, the new man has come up. So in all the bits of our flesh, which we would say, well, that's Pharaoh, that's Egypt, 
Guys, you have God in you. And that is really good news. Because then no matter, and regardless of what cliff you hang from, there's always this one that has his hand tethered to yours that raises you up from any despair, any fear, any brokenness, and allows us then to walk continuously in the work that he's called us to. Daily, you and I have to wrestle with which king are we going to serve? The battle lines have been drawn. The victory is certain. Let's daily choose God. Why? Because he first chose us sovereignly. He brought us into himself. And that is good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the true and real hero of the story. God, we thank you that even in the midst of our own uh, pharaohness, God, that we, um, we also have you in us, Lord. And so, Lord, will we lean into that, press into that, and become more like you every day because of the work of your spirit in our lives? God, grant us grace and mercy, hope, peace, and love that in everything we might serve you. God, be a faithful people in the work you've called us to. God, thank you that even when we complain or when we whine and we say we don't want you, God, that you just continue to come after your people. God, be present with us. Uh, Be glorified in our worship. And God, move amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen.